Support for Connecticut East this week comes from Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, here to help individuals and families affected by gambling-related harm. Call 1-888-789-7777 or visit our website at ccpg.org. Thames at Mitchell College, a holistic on-campus program that helps high school graduates prepare for college through personal transformation. Go to mitchell.edu slash Thames to learn more. And Day Kimball Health, nationally recognized by LeapFrog, Beckers and the American Heart Association. Day Kimball Health, healthcare in motion. Learn more at daykimball.org. March is Problem Gambling Awareness Month. And we talk to the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling about how things are looking and who's being affected by legalized gambling in the state. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Gambling is a multi-billion dollar industry, not just here in the US, but around the world. And in Connecticut, gambling has been around since 1939, when the state legalized bingo. And since then, we've had a variety of different forms of gambling, from off-track betting to greyhound racing. And then in the 1990s, we saw the opening of Foxwoods and then Mohegan Sun Casinos in the eastern part of the state. Despite all of this, time and technology moved on. And in October 2021, online sports betting was allowed in the state, giving anyone with a smart device or computer access to the world of betting. For many, gambling is a bit of fun, but for others, it can become a serious issue. So in this month of March, being Problem Gambling Awareness Month, I caught up with Diana Good, Paul Tarbox and Valerie Tebbets of the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling to find out how gambling has impacted the state and the people who do it. And we should just say for complete transparency that the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is an advertiser on this podcast for the month of March. Joining us from the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is Diana Good, the Executive Director, Paul Tarbox, Director of Public Policy and Communications, and Valerie Tebbets, the Helpline Recovery and Training Manager. To the three of you, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, Diana, I want to kick off with you. October 2021, online gambling became a big media story. Three years in now, 2024. What's the landscape looking like? So, you know, we always start interviews by saying that the Connecticut Council isn't for or against gambling. We are not the fun police. We aren't here to tell people how to spend their disposable income. We just want to make sure as gambling becomes easier and more accessible, that there are safeguards in place. And certainly over the last three years, gambling has become incredibly easy and accessible. We used to say before the expansion that if you lived within 40 miles of a casino, the odds would double that you would become a problem gambler. And now everyone has a casino in their house. So we're seeing a lot of people who are running into trouble very fast. The situation, of course, is all online now. So you've got a phone, a laptop, a computer. What sort of safeguards have been put in place? Because there are some safeguards there, but I mean, it's questionable as to whether or not there should be more. I mean, Diana, do you want to tackle that one? Yes, I can start. I know Val and Paul may want to add some things as well. There are, are safeguards in place. You can 
joined the self-exclusion list through the Department of Consumer Protection, which means you're blocked from all online gambling. You can go on the self-exclusion lists at Mohegan Sun, Bricks and Mortar, and Foxwoods. You can set limits within the apps where you can set limits on how much you want to spend and how much time you want to spend. Our feeling is it's kind of clunky the way the system works right now. It's not one-stop shopping. It's actually a lot of work to get onto all those self-exclusion lists. So we would like to make it easier, whether it's just statewide or regionally wise for people to be able to exclude from everything all at once. We certainly have that technology. Paul, I want to turn to you. We're looking at a report which was compiled for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, known as DEMAS here in Connecticut. It was undertaken by a research agency that won the contract. We're not poking holes in the report. We're just like utilising it because it is a report that DEMAS under Connecticut law, I understand, has to have undertaken every so often. Under the social and health impacts, um, I'm looking at some figures here. It says gambling is not at all or not very important as a recreational activity for the vast majority of people. And it said 93.5%. That said, there's still plenty of people gambling. I mean, you know from the calls to your helpline. So do we have to be a little bit cautious about some of these figures? Well, we, we do have to, to kind of be cautious about the figures and, and the study itself to a degree for the fact that, yeah, you know, while we're really appreciative that the study was completed, it was also done very shortly thereafter the launching of online gambling. And it's also really important to mention that as of now, iLottery hasn't been launched yet, so none of those figures have been incorporated. That being said, it's, it's not exactly a secret inside of the problem gambling community that those that are most susceptible to gambling-related harms tend to be the ones that are, are profited off of most in the gambling industry. So Connecticut has been fortunate to, to kind of have a robust problem gambling safety net that we've established. We continue to work with policymakers to, to make it better, but as always, we can do a better job. Piggybacking off of what Diane was talking about before, you know, the reason a lot of those protections were actually inside of the bill was the advocacy efforts that we did. So it really kind of was something that was important for us in order to, to make sure that we were working with the various legislative committees and the governor's office in order to make sure that there was time and money limits set, pop-ups, or the requirement for the helpline number to be on all advertisements. Being the voice of the problem gambling community is a responsibility that we take very, very seriously. Picking up on the job that's all part of the job that you do, we at the top of the interview said, you know, you are director of public policy. So that part of that job is about advocating, obviously, on behalf of your organization and, and going to the state legislature. Are you looking at anything in this new sort of like legislative session? Because obviously laws always need like little amendments, but also we're in a short legislative session as well. So if you are looking at something, you know, do you think that you're going to get a positive response from the legislators? Again, in a short session, as you mentioned, it's really only kind of augmenting pre-existing budgetary programs. And with that being a fact, it's, it's a lot more challenging to try to introduce new concepts. We have been up at the General Assembly meeting with legislators to try to advance some of the different priorities for us, uh, one of which was actually included in the Demas report of trying to establish a pretrial diversionary program that would allow a, a judge flexibility ability to determine that a person's nonviolent crimes committed because of a gambling disorder that's recognized inside of the DSM-5 as a, as a mental health issue, as opposed to a person just deciding to steal money for their own kind of wherewithal. And it allows that type of latitude. We're also really, really trying to work with the education community to have the conversations early about problem gaming and problem gambling inside of our middle and, and high school curriculums. That being said, it's still very early. We've had a lot of meetings. You know, once the public hearings start coming out, we'll know a little bit more on how successful we have been. One of the great concepts in the legislature is a thing called being germane, which means like or similar. 
So as long as the topic is close, we, we still have an opportunity to testify about the things that are important for us to try to build more momentum because legislation tends to be incremental. On average, uh, a concept that at a minimum tends to take six to seven years to really kind of gain traction unless it's it's something that's an absolute kind of pulse of the community. So we're going to keep working in as hard as we can and trying to build up as much team as possible and hopefully we'll you know, affect positive change for the individuals and families in Connecticut that are impacted by gambling-related harm. Valerie, I want to turn to you as obviously the manager for helpline recovery and training, another obviously very important part of the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling. The helpline, obviously a way for people to get in contact, speak to your advisors, obviously get resources. Give us a sense of not necessarily the figures, but I mean, have you been getting more calls since, you know, 2021 because of the situation that we're talking about, that gambling now is literally in everyone's hands and much easier than ever before to conduct? Yeah, the impact of online gambling was immediate on the helpline. I've been looking at some data because of sort of overview thing I'm trying to do. And the caveat to our data is that we are not data collectors. We're answering the helpline. We're running programming. We're not, we're not data people. We do have a, a decent database, but it has been in transition since really just before the advent of online gambling. So I'm very cautious about using data other than percents of increases. We are working to have data that Paul as the director of communications will have to use, but we want to make sure it's consistent. That being said, I want to answer your question and say, in the last three months of 2021, we saw an increase in chats asking for real help and 10% increase in calls asking for help. That's just in the last three months, right after the inception of online gambling. And that's a significant increase. I mean, we were fairly consistent before that time. It goes up and down month to month, but it was very clear that many more people were impacted very quickly and were reaching out for help. That pattern has maintained itself over the last two years, which is 2022 and 2023. We did not see any drop at all. We saw an increase over 2022, a significant increase and that increase has maintained itself basically over 2023. I can't tell you the exact percentage, but I would say that there's at least a 20% increase in people asking for help. And that addition is essentially the difference between people asking for help from an online gambling issue. The percentages of people gambling online, they go up and up and up. They never go down. I'm guessing we're seeing a situation here in Connecticut, no different to other states that have allowed this, you know, before we we started the online thing. I mean, Diana, perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, you clearly, I'm sure as an organization, I'm guessing, do look at the other states, um, you know, around us who also allows gambling in, in some sort of form. I mean, you know, is Connecticut sort of following that trend or, or are we sort of like in some way different to the trends that you see in other states? Connecticut is definitely following the trends. I also wanted to just add one thing about the data collection. We've always collected data on our helpline calls, but previously to having this staff, the calls were answered by a call center in Canada. Then they moved to somewhere else. I'm not exactly sure where the call center was, but they didn't keep the data that we wanted. 
less successful in transferring people into the treatment services that we have in Connecticut. So we made a huge effort to make sure that all of the helpline calls in Connecticut are answered by a Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling person. So a lot of times that's Val. Sometimes it's me and Paul. A lot of times it's Caitlin. And we've had enormous success with that. So it isn't that we haven't collected the data. It's that we want to make sure we're getting the data that we want. And now we have complete ownership of what's going on. So if you in Connecticut feel like you have a problem with gambling, whether it's you or someone you love and you want to talk about that, when you call, you get one of us. You don't get a call center anywhere else. So I think that's one of the things that has made our whole system really successful. And Val knows all the treatment people and we can get you treated quickly. So that's a really big deal that's made Connecticut very successful. So although we're seeing the same trends about people calling and people running into problems with online gambling, not just sports, but casinos. One of the things that's great about Connecticut is the access to treatment and the fact that CCPG people are answering that phone. When it comes to people with a gambling problem, what are you seeing? Is it a particular gender? Is it more male than female? I mean, is it, you know, can you just maybe give us a little bit of a sense of who it seems to possibly affect more than others? Sure. What am I seeing that I can anecdotally tell you that I can't give hard data for? A massive increase in males between the ages of 21 and 36. That would not have been a large population calling the helpline prior to the advent of online gaming. But, you know, they played both sports and iGaming, and I can't tell you what the problematic issue is for them there because my data doesn't tell me that. It tells me they do both. And that doesn't mean both are a problem. It just means they do both. The second thing that's true is the older population of people who go to the casino has not really diminished. They still have that, that population still has a problem with both blackjack and slots in the casino. The percentage goes down, obviously, because the percentage of other things is going up. But if you looked at the raw numbers, it's really about the same. And there are still a significant portion of Connecticut's population that calls that has a a problem playing scratch tickets for the lottery. We've also got some stats on the difference between online gambling and sports betting, because I think there's a little bit of a bait and switch for me here where we are constantly talking about sports betting. And for me, the bigger issue is online casinos. So Paul pulled up some numbers for a meeting we were just at, and there were $12.8 billion waged on online gambling and 1.6 billion waged on sports betting. So if you look at those numbers, we should be concentrating on online gambling and not on sports betting. Because often sports bettors have a season. If you're a football better, you're done. If you're an online casino better, there is no season. You're still doing that. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, I saw some figures and I don't have them in front of me. But um, of course, we had the Super Bowl fairly recently, just in February. And of course, as you said, to your point, it's a one off event. But the betting across the Super Bowl was just ginormous. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And we didn't get a lot of calls during the Super Bowl, but we're going to start getting calls in the next couple of weeks because a lot of people bet on the Super Bowl and bet too much on the Super Bowl. And now has been spending a couple of weeks trying to get that money back and win that money back and they're not. And so those are the people who are going to call us over the next couple of weeks. There has been an increase in calls since the Super Bowl, not on the Super Bowl, but since the Super Bowl. So we do know that over the course of a year, for the last course of the last two years, I can, the most significant number of calls we get coincide with major sporting events. And what's upcoming in March Madness is 
I think, the biggest. Valerie, let's just quickly talk as well about recovery services. Just give us a sense of sort of what is available to people, because Paul touched upon this a little bit earlier in the interview when he talked about mental health problems. And in the Demas report, that is actually cited as the most common reported harm associated with problem gambling with mental health, followed very quickly by financial problems, of course, and then relationship problems. So what sorts of things are available? Just give us in a nutshell what people can get by way of a a resource a service to help them. So the state of Connecticut has a really good array of services available. Some of that having to do with the fact that we've had casinos for a lot longer than a lot of places. And we implemented a system of treatment a long time ago. I don't know exactly how long we've had the better choice treatment programs, but one of the great services we have is no out-of-pocket cost treatment or gambling problems in the state of Connecticut. There are programs in what five particular regions of the state. They sort of generally break down by county and where a person can be referred to a person with us who is a certified gambling treatment counselor for services. Most of those programs have a peer support person, which is a person with lived experience associated with it. But if somebody chooses not to want to go to a clinician, there is also available a statewide recovery, peer recovery network, which the problem gambling services in Demas funds. And that means I can put you in touch with somebody with lived experience so that you can get a feel for them. I mean, a lot of times with gambling, isolation is a big deal and people want to talk to somebody who's been there. It just helps engage them because it's it's a very isolating, shameful experience to have a gambling problem. We also have a network of Gamblers Anonymous meetings, which are 12-step meetings based on the principles of AA. It's all peer support among people with lived experience and you work a particular program. That program is for people who are interested in abstinence only. There are a lot of online meetings that we now refer people to because online is a very popular way for people to get services. That's been since COVID. So we have lists of gamblersinrecovery.org will list worldwide meetings that people can attend via Zoom. Gamblers Anonymous has Zoom meetings. There's a support line from Gamblers Anonymous that people can call and they, they'll they hook them up with somebody in their area who might help them get a ride to a meeting if that's what they want to go to. So those are some services. And the other service that we really talk more often about now than ever before is a responsible play guidelines. We have a website that is Responsible Play CT. And there are also guidelines in all of the online apps. And they're intended for people who don't necessarily have a severe problem, but it's their initial inquiry into, you know, this might not be working so well for me. I seem to be suffering some harm. And the mental health thing is what they'll say is they'll be like, well, all financial, I'm just, I'm anxious or I'm depressed or, you know, I feel bad about myself. And that's not a small thing when you're talking about a younger population who is just coming into adulthood. It's a big deal that we have tools to help educate them. It's really been a big change for the helpline, I think, is prior to online gambling, people would call and say, you know, I've really hit rock bottom. I've I really need to talk to someone about my problem gambling. And now we'll get calls from people who say, I do not have a problem gambling, but I'm really starting to go that way. I can see this is a problem for me. I can see I'm doing too much gambling. I can see that I'm running into trouble. And then we can direct them to that responsibleplayct.org website. And we can really talk to them about how to set limits, how to have guidelines. And that's really been empowering for all of us. Dino, I just want to give you the final word and thank you, the three of you, for talking us through 
this today. In an ideal world, we know that gambling isn't going to go away. I mean, gambling's been around for a very long time in various forms. I mean, even if you do bingo, it's a form of gambling. But in an ideal world, Diana, what would be, say, the one or two things that you would like to see as we move forward that possibly either comes from the industry or comes from the state that would be good things to have to help reinforce the guardrails? For it to be a little bit of a fair fight, there's some things that the gambling industry will say on their ads that we don't believe are true. They'll say things like gambling is a risk-free activity. It's not. They're also offering free samples. If you set up an account with FanDuel or DraftKings, they'll populate it with $50 or $100. I've often said we legalize cannabis the same time that we legalize online gambling. If the dispensaries were saying marijuana is a risk-free activity, we would be all up in arms. If they were giving out free samples, we would be all up in arms. So I think we need to look at gambling with those same set of eyes. I know there's also legislation And I don't know if Paul's seen that, but legislation by the cannabis industry along the same guidelines about restricting advertising like we would do with alcohol. I would like that same kind of discussion to be taking place around gambling. That's been something that's been one of our legislative priorities. But ironically enough, the Public Safety Committee, which is the committee that oversees gambling in the state, actually just had a concept that was introduced by the Department of Consumer Protection. And inside of that bill is is essentially a piece, uh, exactly as Diana described, that's seeking to kind of put some of the youth protections in place. So as soon as that gets scheduled for public hearing, we'll obviously be in support of, of that that individual provision and maybe a few others. And yeah, we'll try to rally the problem gambling community to kind of let legislators know that, hey, this is really important to us. And it's obviously something that we really think is an important point to educate our youth on. We're not telling people not to gamble. We just want to make sure that people know what they're in store for. We just want to make sure that people understand the ins and outs of what could potentially happen when they decide to open online accounts. Absolutely. Well, Diana Good, Valerie Tebbets, and Paul Tarbox from the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling. Again, thanks for joining us, giving us an update on the situation and the work, the valuable work that all of you are doing. And obviously, as you say, Paul, the advocacy that uh, continues to happen behind the scenes to make sure that at the end of the day, we're not going to see gambling disappear, but to try and make it as safe and as fair as possible, as you say, for everybody, but also to make sure that there are services in there for people who decide that that's uh, something that uh, they want to get involved in. To the three of you, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And if you or someone you know has been impacted by gambling and need help or resources, then you can contact the Connecticut Council on Problem gambling at their website ccpg.org or call their helpline at 1-888-789-7777. Connecticut East This Week is made possible by Thames at Mitchell College, a college transition program on Mitchell's waterfront campus in New London. Mitchell offers a culture of radical possibilities where students with learning or processing differences can thrive, easing into college with supportive faculty and a strong social network. Within this tight-knit living and learning community, Thames students build executive functioning skills, earn college credit, learn strategies for independence, and experience transformative growth. Learn more at Mitchell and it's time for the quiet corner to make some noise some day kimball health noise largest employer in our region kind of noise day kimball health serves more than 125,000 people offers cardiology orthopedics and oncology specialties it's having the region's only comprehensive and accredited breast center kind of noise 
We are nationally recognized by LeapFrog, Beckers, and the American Heart Association. Day Kimball Health. Healthcare in motion. The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is a nonprofit organization which, through advocacy, prevention, and education, is here to support individuals and families who are impacted by problem gambling. Our helpline, 1 888 789 7777, is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We also have live chat and tech support through our website, www.ccpg.org. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Connecticut submarine maker Electric Boats gave their annual legislative update recently to local municipal and business leaders in the region. The company has been aggressively recruiting over the past few years to increase its workforce to meet the demand for more submarines for the U.S. Navy. Kevin Graney is the president of Electric Boat and said their expansion is also being driven by countries like China, who are quickly growing the size of their navy. The size of the shipbuilding industry in China... Jingguan Shipyard, 7.5 square miles in size. And if you take all of Electric Boat, Quonset Point, and Rhode Island, we're about a half a square mile. So you think about the capacity that China can bring to bear. And it is so important that we continue to build ships for our Navy and challenge those threats. U.S. Congressman Joe Courtney from Eastern Connecticut was a keynote speaker at the event and gave a legislative update from the federal level and mentioned the recent AUKUS submarine agreement signed in 2021 between Australia, the UK and the US. That is a first for the nation and will help to combat the rising threats from countries like Russia and China. We've never sold their submarine to another country. You know, right now, if a foreign national shows up at Kevin's shipyard, a person really can't go in there. Maybe the model room, and that's about it. So included in the bill is some new regulations or new authorities to the State Department so that we can help skill up Australians because that's going to be part of the plan by sort of 2040 to have their own sort of shipyard in, in place that's there. Courtney also welcomed three submariners from the Royal Australian Navy who are currently undergoing submarine training at the new London submarine base in Groton. Graney said EB is now working on the new Columbia-class submarine, their largest to date, as well as being part of the AUKUS deal with Australia that will see the US sell three of EB's nuclear submarines to that country. Graney also said that EB employed a record number of new employees in 2023, around 5,000, and will be doing so again this year and for the foreseeable future future. Mental health professionals in Connecticut and across the U.S. are looking at ways to reduce suicide among military veterans. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has this report. Research shows a 95% increase in veteran suicides between 2001 and 2020, peaking in 2018. But in Connecticut, recent data is trending lower than previous years. Experts say social isolation in the COVID pandemic was responsible for some of the nationwide increase. But Dr. Joshua Bullock, a veterans affairs psychologist, finds difficult individual experiences can take their toll as well. Oftentimes, PTSD can kind of lead to sometimes a sense of alienation from others, difficulty kind of feeling safe in the world. So you can imagine sort of living day to day feels unsafe if one is perceiving threats or danger. Along with programs at area hospitals, Bullock points to psychosocial work as an important step in helping veterans adjust to life after deployment. The Department of Veterans Affairs has federal grants available for community-based suicide prevention efforts, and anyone in crisis or having suicidal thoughts can call 988, then press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. 
Two Connecticut prison teams will go up against the brightest and the best from two New York universities as part of the National Prison Debate League. An all-female team from York Correctional Institution will take on a debate team from Cornell University, and a male team from Cheshire Correctional Institute will debate New York University. Brittany Lamar is the assistant director of the National Prison Debate League and said it's all about breaking down barriers and stereotypes about incarcerated people. To sort of allow these incarcerated students to debate on a a level platform against NCAA like debate teams and demonstrate their intellectual capacity, their human capacity and allow society to sort of see them as human beings to see incarcerated people engage in civic engagement and social diplomacy in a way that's never been demonstrated before. Daniel Troop is the founder of the National Prison Debate League and says their program is open to everyone. We have no prerequisites whatsoever. So I hope that people understand that when we take people a group of folks who can come from any socioeconomic or educational background and do an NPDL 12-week debate training program, having never debated before in their lives, and are consistently outperforming some of the top policy debate teams in America, the formula sells itself. The league has been in existence for 20 years and was founded by Troop back then when he was incarcerated himself in Massachusetts and found the prison system had no educational programs for inmates. Troop says the program is so successful that Department of Correction Commissioners from around the nation are implementing it in their prisons and seeing less conflict between inmates and staff. Prison debates can be seen on the league's YouTube channel and the team's debate topics such as whether the US should adopt a no-first-use nuclear posture and that the federal government should substantially de-emphasize current diversity, equity and inclusion programs in its attempt to reform the criminal justice system. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.